dear listeners, welcome to European Talks. My name is Trahina Subotic and I will be your host for today. The goal of this episode is to address the increasingly present issues of such as corruption, rise of external actors, and environmental neglect in the Western Balkans. Uh, we want to see whether and how all these issues are interconnected and reinforcing each other. In order to address these questions and issues, I'm joined today by Tena Prelitz, who is actually a research fellow at the Department of International Relations at the Oxford University. She's also a research associate at the London School of Economics or LSE. And finally, she's a member of the Balkans in Europe Policy Advisory Group or BIEPAG. Tena, welcome. Thank you, Strachinian. It's nice to have you here and thank you for sparing your time. Uh, I'd like to start with the issue of corrosive capital. Uh, I've seen that in the past couple of years, you've been quite vocal actually about the phenomenon of corrosive capital, uh, particularly in the context of external actors in the region and their increasing presence. You've written many articles, and in one of those articles, you described that the return to authoritarian tendencies in the region or the rise of illiberal democracies in the region has actually facilitated access for a type of investment that exploits governance weaknesses and even magnifies those weaknesses. So can you tell us more about how this concept applies in practice? Sure, and wow, thank you for summarizing my, my research so well. I couldn't have done it better myself, I think. <laughs> so um, look, when I started working on, on this topic, uh, which was uh, back in 2015, more or less, um, I realized it was widely misunderstood in the, in the scholarship and also in policy discourse. Um, so we do not, did not have the conceptual means to understand it and therefore assess it and to do anything about it. So I think it's worth unpacking it a little. So um, when me and my colleagues at the LSE's uh, research unit on Southeastern Europe started working on it, it was in relation um, with the, the investments coming from the United Arab Emirates. And the mandate mm -hmm. we had at that point was basically to assess foreign aid coming from Gulf countries into the Balkans. However, you know, we, we soon realized this foreign aid that we were trying to, to understand and to analyze was not merely selfless. There were some commercial implications behind it. So business and therefore foreign direct investments. But foreign direct investments is also not a concept that says it all because a, these deals were not always outright investments, sometimes they were loans, and in general it was unclear what the investor got out of it, and sometimes it was even unclear what the recipient country uh, got out of it, because it seems that right. uh, sometimes they did not benefit from it at all, but they were at the losing end actually. So what was going on there? Yeah. Um, one thing was clear, that these deals, that the way these deals were, were done, was most often than not bypassing the normal procedures. Uh, it was lacking in transparency very heavily, and it was clearly benefiting someone. We just did not have the means to assess exactly who and what it was benefiting. And in the meantime, it was raising a lot of discontent among the population in the process because of this very non-transparent, walled-off character of these deals in which a lot of uh, um, a big part of the population felt like they were um, kept 
uh, in in the darkness about the mm. the details of the deal and also they were kept uh, uh, in the darkness as per uh, the benefit that this is going to to give to to the whole population how is is this going to to work uh, in practice of course you know belgrade waterfront is the the premier example uh, in that sense so if we think about this non-transparency and general grayness we come in the realm of uh, corruption studies but again, you know, when you think of impartial and unfair allocation of resources, which we touched upon just now, what is studied in corruption studies, for instance, is public procurement. So this is something that we know about and we study. But this is not public procurement, is it? It's something different. Uh, and again, in grand corruption, in the realm of grand corruption, you would usually touch upon favoritism or bribery. One example in the Southeast European context would be, uh, of course, you know, former uh, Croatian Prime Minister Sanader and the Ines scandal, etc. But again, bribery was not a whole story. So it's a new beast, yeah. And uh, other researchers have uh, observed this in the meantime. Uh, in the context of Southeastern Europe and also abroad, because it's very relevant also to, to note that uh, uh, contexts such as uh, Africa or Latin America or Central Asia have a lot of uh, uh, points of contact with what we're serving in Southeastern Europe. And in my view, uh, the team at SIPE, uh, the Center for uh, International Private Enterprise in, in Washington, DC, they gave this really useful um, term corrosive capital okay. for us to understand what's going on. Uh, so corrosive capital, as you said, is basically those flows of money that exploit the governance weaknesses on a certain territory in the recipient countries and make it wider. So just to round up what, what I was saying so far, I think that it's worth noting that in these dynamics that we observe, there are at least three elements that need to come together for okay. this corrosive capital to uh, to sort of be defined. So we have an economic dimension, a political dimension, and also I would add to that something that has not been so much research yet is this ideational dimension of the creation of narratives. So okay. from an economic perspective, um, oh, I think it's worth noting that business interest is not discounted. So it is a concern. So we, we, we should not say that, oh, since Russia has been, uh, I don't know, a very ruthless in, in extracting a, a lot of benefit from the deal with Serbia, that therefore this is not corrosive capital, it's something else. So no, business interests, of course, are important, but they do not make the whole story. There is something else behind it, because non-transparency allows for an allocation of resources that is uh, uh, unclear, to say the least, and and often um, uh, not not benefiting the, the whole population. Okay. Second, the political dimension. Uh, what uh, we highlighted with Will uh, Will Bartlett um, in our work on the UAE is that there is this authoritarian meeting of minds that fuels these deals. So this sort of you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, and we'll we'll call them handshake deals, which is another uh, you know okay. interesting term I think, which means that when you have a backsliding of democracy on the one hand in southeastern Europe, which we know is happening, and on the other hand you have these uh, um, top-down way of dealing with the pub, uh, with the public resources that you find in countries such as the UAE, but also mutatis mutandis in China in Turkey to some extent, or in Russia to another extent, then this connubium, this link, happens in a more easier, in an easier way. 
And third, uh, which is uh, something that I noted in relation to Chinese investments recently, is this ideational aspect of it, the creation of narratives. So in my view, these deals are not only useful to uh, fuel um, the accumulation of capital among the political and business elites of, of uh, the recipient country, but they can also be used to political ends by the political leadership, by exploiting the narrative of friends from abroad coming to the rescue, to further their own political standing. So in my example, I analyzed the case of uh, the SNS and uh, um, Alexander Vucic in particular, in using this help first from the Emirates and then from China to establish himself and his political leadership and his, his government, his, uh, his regime, as the one that is able to save his own population. And increasingly, I would also say, uh, is able to play a geopolitical role in the region as we're seeing right now with the vaccination, uh, with the vaccine race, if you want to call it that way. So when it comes to the Emirates, you often point to Belgrade waterfront, but when it comes to China and it's increasing narrative building together with the Serbian president, you focus on the COVID-19 pandemic as a particular case? Well, um, yes and no. So uh, the uh, this is a study they published with the uh, PSSI, the Prague Security Studies Institute, um, uh, and it's called Our Brothers, Our Saviors, and it basically analyzes how um, this uh, narrative of friends coming from the rescue was used by Vucic and his party um, in the early 2010s, up until 2016, more or less, 2017, okay. um, in relation to the Emirates, and then increasingly the Chinese um, brothers, as, as uh, are often called in, in, in Serbia, were um, those who uh, took uh, over uh, this, this narrative, meaning that, uh, um, that this increasing uh, and very significant, I would, I would say, presence of, uh, of Chinese investments in Serbia was the one that was used as, uh, um, as this big uh, uh, element to assert that there are friends coming from abroad to the rescue, while always in this context of a multi-stool foreign policy, yes. yeah, in which, in which you have uh, very many uh, different uh, foreign friends that one can count on. But within this economic narrative that is very, very uh, dominant uh, in the SNS discourse of the Serbian Progressive Party, um, th this element of, uh, of uh, First Emirati and then Chinese investments was, was really very significant, I argue. But in that regard, we see that the EU is increasingly vocal about uh, the rising impact of uh, countries such as China and sometimes even Emirates and Russia. Do you think that uh, the EU has that done enough to maybe assist Serbia in uh, um, relying less on these Eastern partners? Or do, what would you suggest the EU would do to maybe prevent the influx of this corrosive capital in the future? Um, so look, yes, there is a lot of talk uh, about uh, this, about the influence of non-Western actors from a security perspective and ideological perspective, most of all, but I think there is not enough um, talk and not enough done from a governance perspective and also um, uh, from a perspective of other spillover effects that are very significant, such as the one into the environment. So look, I think there is a lot that the EU can do that is, is not yet done. I mean, first of 
fall, we can't forget that uh, corruption and especially grand corruption today is interconnected. We cannot see it uh, as happening in a, in a vacuum in a single country. Uh, these dynamics uh, touch upon very many countries. Um, so the EU itself is, is involved in it. I mean, I can just mention one, uh, one case, but there are so many. Uh, I mean, the Mojura wind farm in Montenegro, it's marketed as a Belt and Road Initiative project by the Chinese. It okay. has Azerbaijani capital behind it. It has Maltese companies, so EU, uh, company that is the, the main actor within it, and also UK advisors, if you look at it. Uh, so it has it all. So these these elements are, are very, very um, interconnected, and the EU cannot wash their hands clean of it. So and that's that's this concept applies also to some companies from the EU as well? Look, I think so. So as I noted uh, earlier, um, this authoritarian meeting of minds is easier when you have uh, a political yes. type of structure that is kind of top down. And therefore, yes, we do speak of corrosive capital more uh, when, we, when we talk about uh, um, investor countries that are more authoritarian. However, it is important to know that uh, the situation you find on the ground provides a sort of filter to the type of companies that will come in. Therefore, some, you know, a lot of the Western investments that would be good in inverted commerce, we don't even we don't even talk about it because it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen at the entrance. I know many investors I spoke to who have just given up in investing in Southeastern Europe because they cannot mm. ensure that everything will be done according to the rules. And yet we do see some um, uh, Western countries and, and Western uh, companies uh, um, engaging in, in sort of unclear terms in, uh, in, in the Western Balkans. I mean, one example I would make is France, which seems to have found quite a good um, well, way of, of, of talking with the, with the Serbian top and uh, an involvement in, in quite important projects that have raised uh, various red flags, as has been uh, highlighted by investigations from the OCCRP and CRIC, for instance. So I would say, you know, from a new perspective, put your house in order first. You okay. need strict regulations for your own companies to not misbehave abroad. The US has it in a certain way, you know, they have the Foreign uh, Corrupt Practices Act. The UK has it to a certain extent, they have the Bribery Act, but it's not the same everywhere. I think the, you know, EU countries, EU member states and the EU overall could do more about it. Then the Magnitsky Act, there were, there were talks about uh, sanctioning uh, PEPs, so um, politically exposed persons, who, who misbehave in, at the EU level as well. But um, although the EU is working on it, they are uh, considering for the moment more the human rights side of things. So sanctions for right. um, individuals that are, that are misbehaving on the human rights side, which is of course super important, but corruption needs to be included in that. And of course, the regulation of international monetary flows. So transparency in beneficial ownership is, is hugely important to, to crack down on, on, on these type of deals. That's a very good point. And uh, it should be emphasized even more in the near future, not only by you, but even other researchers. So I would agree that we should all take a look at our garden first and settle things and then argue that others are better or worse than us. Now I'd like to turn uh, the focus of our, our attention to another very important issue, 
and that is environment. And uh, we see that the region is increasingly getting negative scores and that there, we can access these scores online. Regular people can see that our, uh, for example, air is getting more and more polluted. They can even see it visibly with their own eyes. So we can tell that actually environment and environmentalism as an issue is becoming a hot topic, not only in Serbia, but also the entire uh, Western Balkan uh, region. So in that regard, uh, China becomes uh, very important as it has increasingly been investing in Serbia's heavy industry. Uh, and we, we have examples of uh, Kostolat, uh, Bor, and Smedereva. So in that regard, you wrote recently an article called Eco Monsters and Eco Fires in which you analyze this issue. So can you tell us what lies behind this interesting title? Um, sure. So the starting point was once again, uh, this non-Western influence in, in the Balkans. Um, uh, so in this case, it was this, the, the Chinese angle. And uh, I was tasked um, um, by the research funders to work on the governance yeah. side of things. And to be honest with you, I had to do some convincing to mm -hmm. argue that the governance side of things in this interaction was really very much linked with environment. That environment is a big part of, of, of this whole interaction. And this was not rec recognized until recently. And I'm really so happy to see that there is uh, an increasing awareness of uh, this issue being interconnected and of this issue being of extreme importance, not only for Serbia, but for the Western Balkans uh, um, as a whole, uh, as for, uh, for instance, uh, was the case in, um, in relation to the letter that the members of the European Parliament, a group of, of MEPs have sent to uh, Commissioner Oliver Varghel um, in relation to the environmental impact of Chinese investments. So this happened um, at the beginning of this year, right? For our listeners. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, in January, in January this year. So the topic is, is now starting to be discussed also in Brussels, and I hope uh, I hope more will, will come of it from a, from a policy perspective. Uh, so, you know, to try to unpack this, um, of course, you know, it, it, uh, it really uh, follows very nicely from what we discussed uh, so far, because if you have these deals where non-transparency is, is the norm and in which economic gain of one type or another, as we saw, it's unclear whether it goes all in the, in the state coffers, um, if economic gain is uh, important over everything else, then of course environment is one of those concerns that are um, disregarded. Yeah. Um, so it's very it's very clear that this was the case in in Serbia and also in other countries. I mean, even the political leaders themselves have, have said it quite openly uh, that uh, um, China had to diversify and their their production of steel, for instance, and of other heavy industry, and therefore they came and, and invested in 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 Serbia. Uh, so these plants, it's important to say um, that they were highly polluting also beforehand and that they have a, a long string of environmental and of governance problems. Um, you have the issue with, of course, these, uh, these plants being outdated um, and therefore polluting more than they, they, they would usually. You have the issue of clientelism that has always affected these big, these big companies. Right. Uh, because, of course, you know, uh, elections, um, a, a big way 
uh, to skew um, the electoral process in favor of the incumbent of the ruling party is through the hiring process. So that's why these big companies that were state uh, owned until recently were actually the pay is a bit higher or actually considerably higher than in the private sector were important to maintain electoral domination. So we have all these issues that have uh, basically um, been carried out until today. Um, um, yeah, they, they, they have been, they have continued. And um, the Serbian government has found themselves in a situation in which they wanted to save these companies through a, an external uh, um, founder. And so far, you know, so good. I mean, it's understandable the kind of reasoning behind it. However, um, the way it was it was done, um, again, you know, the fact that these uh, um, deals might be non-transparent, that there might be um, uh, not so clear to the public what is it that characterizes them, opens up the possibility of uh, environment being disregarded. And it is exactly what, what has happened uh, because uh, citizens in both Bod and Smedrevo, which are the two case studies that I, that I analyzed, they have uh, um, lived through a situation that was uh, in their perception becoming worse and worse uh, by the day and have reacted against it. And that is why it's called eco-monsters, obviously, and yes. eco-fighters, so those who have, uh, have fought against it. It's also relevant to note that another part of non-transparency is the measurement of air pollution and of uh, pollution in general. So when, you know, if you ask me now, okay, but what, where are your proof? Where is the proof that the Chinese have made it worse? We don't have proof actually, because the measurement has been so patchy and uh, it's uh, um, the, the, the standards have been changed in some, in some occasions. And therefore it is actually, you cannot find a very clear relationship between the takeover and uh, the, heightening or the lowering of uh, pollution on average. But we do have instances such as in Bor in, uh, um, in autumn last year, okay. in which the quantity of, uh, of pollution was like, uh, of sulfur dioxide, for instance, was 10 times more than what is allowed. So it's very clear that this is a very strong health risk. And things like the presence of arsenic in the air, which is highly, highly, highly venomous, uh, are something that uh, that should not should not happen at all. So this is you know this is just a short introduction right. of why I think this topic is important and why the governance element and the environmental element are uh, very much interconnected in it. But as more and more people are actually criticizing the environmental aspect of uh, these deals, don't you think that this hurts China's China's image in Serbia but also in Europe? There are already many people suspecting China's intentions and so on. Wouldn't China have interest actually in uh, addressing these complaints and particularly also the Serbian government? How optimistic are you that the situation can be changed in the following years? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the indications that are there right now is that uh, actually the pressure has worked maybe better okay. with the Chinese companies than with the Serbian government. Um, be, yeah, um, from the minutes of, uh, of recent meetings uh, with, at these companies that I mentioned, we can see that the, the Chinese managers were very um, wary of uh, the public pressure that has been put mm -hmm. and, uh, and they have uh, 
possibly, we hope, we can only hope, uh, become more serious about uh, tackling the environmental issues and sort of scaled up these investments into the environmental transition of the companies that they say they would do. So fingers crossed that uh, the work of these activists has actually brought to some um, good uh, uh, good improvements from, from the Chinese uh, management side. Um, on the Serbian government side, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do not see yet any um, real and uh, you know, wholehearted expressions of, uh, uh, of of remorse of having to having this neglected really um, the health of citizens for so long, and uh, it does not seem to me that uh, anything really concrete is being done so far to um, to tackle it. Uh, one of the worrying instances recently was the firing of an expert on air pollution within the uh, national right. agency um who who uh, who tried to uh, to note the fact that the changing of the measurement standards was was not a good practice to uh, to start with to actually understand what what the situation is all about so uh, starting from this onwards it seems the political will at the top in in Serbia is not yet really present there are some you know individuals within the institutions that have been trying to do the good thing but um, given that uh, political will at the top is uh, lacking still, um, the, the situation is not looking great, to be honest. And particularly as Serbia has yet to open chapter 27 dealing with the environment, and we may expect more pressure from the West regarding this issue, particularly if, this, if these issues remain unaddressed. But in that regard, and finally, we're running out of time. This has been a really interesting conversation. I'd like to touch upon the role of civil society organizations. We are members of the civil society uh, uh, sector in Serbia and the Western Balkans in general, and we could try to, to uh, really promote and advocate solutions to this issue. But considering that there are elements of state capture of the Western Balkans and that the environment for civil society has not been conducive for our work, how optimistic are you when it comes to the role of civil society? Do you think that we can maybe find alternative solutions and uh, potentially have our voices heard and uh, spreading our message to the local population? What, what are your expectations regarding this matter? Um, so I see some reasons for optimism, to be honest. And this is because environment is really a topic that gets uh, people going independent of their ideological um, uh, standing, their ideological affiliation. So um, there is this new campaign called Balkans United for Clean Air, um, promoted by the European Fund for the Balkans, that has really tried to give voice to something that to a certain extent was happening naturally already, because a lot of these uh, um, groups of activists that have sparked uh, upon in several places in the Western Balkans uh, had already started to create a network and to act together um, on this topic. So environment uh, is something that I see uh, uniting people across the region uh, that has maybe not an ideological, so uh, affiliation on, on the political side of the spectrum, but at the same time is definitely a very political uh, topic. Um, so let's see what what uh, comes out of it. But I think that you know some elements of of it uh, remaining important in the future are definitely there. Uh, thank you, Tana, for your really precious insight. Uh, the 
comments you made are really valuable and I hope the, it, those comments will reach wider audiences because these topics are really particularly important uh, at this moment. Uh, I also wish to thank our listeners for tuning in and uh, I wish them to stay healthy and to stay tuned for more episodes to come. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you, thank Jenna. Thank you so much, Strachina, and all your colleagues and to all the listeners, of course. All the best. Bye.